Thank you for listening to the Paradigm Podcast. Paradigm is a young adult ministry that exists to see lives changed by Jesus. For more information about Paradigm, go to ParadigmKC.com. We hope this message is inspiring and life-changing. Thanks for listening. Pastor Phil, for those I have not met, I hope I get to sometime. I pastor the church here called Abundant Life, and we are so proud of Paradigm and all that you're doing in this generation to advance a kingdom. So Chad's been in a series in 1 Thessalonians, and so we're going to pick it up right there where he left off a week ago. In 1 Thessalonians, we're in chapter 4. Maranatha, it was an early Christian saying, a greeting. It means the Lord comes. Maranatha, that has been the hope of every generation of every Christian for the last 2,000 years. One of the tenets of the historic Christian faith is that Jesus Christ is going to come again and set up a kingdom that will be without sin, it'll be without end. He made this promise the night before he was crucified, the night before he was betrayed. It's found in John chapter 14. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself to where I am, there you may be also. In paradigm, every generation of Christians since have anticipated the promise being fulfilled that one day Jesus Christ will come again. Uh, it's intrigue, it's kind of a mystery, and for generations people have tried to figure out the date that Jesus will come. Now he made it very clear in Acts chapter one, don't even try to figure out when he will come because he said there's only one who knows when and that is his Father in heaven, not even the angels of heaven, the Father alone knows. He said no one knows the day or the hour. He said I shall come as a thief in the night, but people just can't resist uh, trying to guess when he's coming back. And some of you are actually old enough to remember this billboard campaign from 2011, driving around Lee Summit. It was a nationwide billboard campaign. I'm talking a multi-million dollar billboard campaign. A multi-millionaire was convinced he had cracked the code, the secret code in the Bible. And so they were on this campaign and this billboard. I'd always kind of wince when I would see this. Save the date. Return of Christ, May the 21st, 2011. I mean, these were everywhere. Some of you are actually old enough to remember. You're like 11 at the time, all right? I actually can remember. And every single, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Because it just, you know, it's kind of fodder for the unbeliever. Like, okay, here we go again. Big roll of the eye. And, of course, 2011 came and went, and Jesus didn't come. Yet people can't resist to try to tell us when, the day or the hour. They have figured it out. Hey, after tonight, you think you have figured out the exact day that Jesus is coming. Would you just please not tell anybody? Because if that was the date, I guarantee he's going to change the date. All right? So if it is the date, just keep it to yourself between you and Jesus. All right? Because otherwise, he's not going to come. He said, no man knows the day or the hour. Uh, You probably don't remember this book. I actually am old enough to remember this book. I graduated in 1987. This book came out in 1988. 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. I mean, that is bold, isn't it? Now, he sold 4.5 million copies, and of course, 1988 came and went, and Jesus didn't come. 
Now, he didn't get there all by himself. He actually built this book on top of somebody else's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, a prophecy scholar by the name of Hal Lindsey, and The Late Great Planet Earth, published in 1973. By 1990, it sold 27.5 million copies. And it was in this book that Hal Lindsey predicted that he had to come before 1988. This was 1973, because Israel became a nation in 1948, and Jesus promised in Matthew 24 that generation would not pass away. And so he believed a biblical generation was 40 years, and so anybody can do that kind of math. And so he was convinced, based on that generation of 1948, that Jesus had to come by 1988. And did you know that this book is still selling copies all these years later. That's how much people want to know. When will Jesus come? So here's what I'm going to tell you tonight as we talk about the second coming of Christ and the Apostle Paul answers some of these questions. We're not going to be setting any dates. Everybody okay with that? We're not setting any dates, but listen very carefully. We can know with certainty that we are, in fact, living in the season of the second coming. As a matter of fact, I did a whole sermon in the Daniel series that we completed this year. And if you're not part of Abundant Life on Sunday mornings, we were going through the book of Daniel, verse by verse, line by line. It's a book full of prophecy related to the end times. And the last message you can find on our sermon page entitled, Hope Beyond the Scope of Impending Apocalypse. And in this message, I share all the biblical prophecies that have been fulfilled just in the last century, and that is the reason we can say emphatically, well, we cannot say the exact day or the hour or even the year. I'm telling you, Paradigm, we can say with certainty, unlike any other generation of Christians before us, that we are in fact living in the season of the second coming, and that is what Christians have always wanted to know. From the early days of Christianity, even the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians, and you don't mind now because of Chad's great preaching that Thessalonica was a city where the early Christians, led by the Apostle Paul, planted a church. And the Apostle Paul planted this church in the Greek city of Thessalonica, and he taught them for several years the fundamental tenets of Christianity, one of which is the second coming. But they were a little bit confused by what they heard. And kind of like, you know, if you hear something for the first time, you don't catch it all. And so uh, there's a little bit of confusion around some of what Paul had taught several years earlier. And so they'd now written him a letter, and they're asking for some clarification. It's kind of like sometimes I preach on a Sunday morning. It's not unusual at all. And I'll get an email later that week, Pastor Phil, I didn't fully understand this. I'm not sure. Is this exactly what you said? And sometimes I'm like, no, that's exactly the opposite of what I said. Okay, so they email me, I email them back, all right? To put it in contemporary vernacular, they have emailed the Apostle Paul. Hey, we've got some questions now. He's emailed them back. Let me answer the questions. They were confused. They thought Paul had taught in the immediacy of Christ's return, like he's coming now in our lifetime. That's not what he taught. What he taught was the imminency of Christ's return. Not that he will come now, but that he could come now, and that every single one of us then need to be ready. Like today could be the day. The second thing they were confused about is they thought he had taught that only those Christians alive at the second coming get to go to heaven. And you can imagine, they're kind of concerned about their, their loved ones and their friends and family that have died, like what's going to happen to them. And so the Apostle Paul, in this text, he's going to answer three questions. He's going to answer what happens to Christians when they die. Like, I want to know, just in case I'm not alive 
at the second coming. I'd kind of like to know what happens if I do die. Like, I think I might be alive. Like, I might be that generation that is still alive, but just in case, I'd like to know. How about you? And tonight, the Apostle Paul is going to answer that question. What happens to those who die if they know Jesus? And he's going to answer a second question. What is the rapture? The rapture is kind of a mystery. I mean, it's kind of an in-house debate theologically among Christians. What is this rapture that Paul talks about? And the third thing is why should we care? Why is this encouraging to anybody? And so let's get started. Let's answer this question. What happens to Christians when they die? If you're ready for this, say Maranatha. Okay, some of you are ready. Some of you aren't sure, but here we go anyway. 1 Thessalonians 5.13. He says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, now, sleep in the Bible is a euphemism of death. He doesn't literally mean, you know, they were tired, they had to take a nap, all right? So sleep is a euphemism or a metaphor of death. He's answering the question, what happens to those Christians when they die? He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first." So what is Paul teaching here? The apostle that God used to write half of the New Testament, he says, when Jesus returns, the dead will rise first. Uh, what part of them rises from the grave? Listen very carefully. If you die tonight and you're a follower, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have trusted in him to forgive you of your sin, your body goes in the grave, but you don't go in the grave. Your body goes in the grave, but your soul immediately goes to heaven. Today, when a Christian dies, their body goes into the grave, but their soul goes immediately into heaven in the very presence of God. And I want you to see the reality of what Jesus taught. In John chapter 12, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Aren't you glad God put some butts in the Bible? I mean, that's a but we all need. The wage of sin is death. Everybody say but. The gift of God is eternal life. You see, because of sin, we're all destined to die. The reality is that sin and its penalty has brought a death penalty on everybody. But the sinless Son of God came like the sons of men so that he could die for our sin so that we could be born again to become like him. 2,000 years ago, it was God that became a man so that he could become our sacrificial lamb. And this is what Paul is now teaching, that though your body goes in the grave, your soul immediately goes to heaven. You say, Pastor Phil, can you prove that? Say, prove that. I know some of you wanted me to. I wasn't sure, but some of you did. All right, here we go. All right, Paul would write this to another church in another city, another letter, the letter of 2 Corinthians. Look at what he says in, in verse chapter 5 and verse 4. He says this, 
For we who are in this tent groan at being burdened. Now, Paul would use a tent as a metaphor for the physical body. And you think about this. This is a good metaphor. Anybody here ever uh, go tent camping? Who here, after going tent camping, still likes going tent camping? You guys are weird. I mean, I respect you. I just don't understand you, okay? So I used to take my kids tent camping when they were growing up. Some of you might know my youngest son, Josh. Uh, Josh is my youngest son, and when he was like 10, 11, 12, you know, I, I thought I'd be a great dad, awesome dad, and we would, we would go floating down, you know, southern Missouri somewhere, and, and then we'd get a tent, and, you know, we, uh, we would do the, the air mattress. You guys know what I'm talking about? You wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and all the air's out of it. Yeah, that was us. And uh, it's 95 degrees in July, and it's 95 degrees, I'm talking at 2 o'clock in the morning, and about 95% humidity, and you're just laying there in your tent, and you're sweating, and you can't breathe, and you can't sleep. I realized after several years of taking my kids tent camping that I am a better dad when we camp in a cabin (laughs) instead of a tent. I'm just a better dad the next day. You know what I'm saying? Not only am I a better dad, I'm a better Christian. I'm just a better man. Oh, yeah, so we would get us a cabin with AC, a hot shower, and a mattress. It's just better for everybody. You know why? Because we weren't made to live forever in a tent. It's hard enough to live for a day in a tent. This is what I discovered. I mean, I, I, I've kind of done this. I've been there. There's a reason Paul calls this body a tent. You know why? Because it ain't made for comfort. A tent's not made to stay in forever. A tent is a temporary place you stay. And that's the nature of these bodies. And he says, and we groan in this tent. Some of you are not old enough yet to know what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he said you groan in this tent. Hang on, 20 years from now, you'll groan a little bit in this tent, okay? I know it's hard to believe when you're 25. You feel good every day. No, listen, I live on five-hour energy now, okay? (laughs) Keep that between us. I wouldn't say that on a Sunday morning, but Paradigm can handle that. Pastor Phil, you're so full of energy, filled with the Holy Ghost. No, it's five-hour energy, okay? (laughs) This is what I know Paul's talking about. We groan in this tent. The older you get, the tent starts to wear out. I mean, seriously, I'm at the age now where my body is cashing checks it wrote 30 years ago. Really? I've got to screw this long in this shoulder, football injury. It didn't bother me for years. I had it completely reconstructed 30 years ago. I get out of bed today in the morning. It's like trying to take a shower, turn the water on. Guys, I'm telling you, eventually these bodies groan and wear out. Why? Because they are under the curse of sin. That's why. We were never meant to die. Do you understand? God made Adam to live forever. God made Adam to be like him, to bear his image, to be immortal and holy like him. But he told Adam, don't eat of that tree. And the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Adam ate. The rest is history. He passed a death sentence onto all of his posterity, all of humanity. It says in Romans 5 and verse 12, as in Adam all die, as by one man's sin, death entered the world. So death passed on all men for all all have sinned, but there's good news. That's bad news, but you got to get to the bad news before you can understand the good news. He's going to give us now some good news. He says, for we who are in this tent groan, 
being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. See, the reality is there's no such thing as soul sleep. There are some denominations that distort this teaching that say not only does your body go in the grave, but your soul goes in the grave, and it sleeps in a state of unconsciousness until the second coming. When it's awakened, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The moment you, this body dies, you don't die. This body dies, but you don't die. There's a part of you that lives forever. The soul is that part of you that lives forever. The soul is the self-awareness. It's your self-understanding, your self-conscious. And this is why you can go to passages all over the New Testament, like say Revelation chapter 6, and you can read about these souls that are underneath the altar. They are in heaven, and they have a full understanding of who they are. They have a full understanding of how they got there. They have a full understanding of who they were on earth, and even some level what is going on on the earth. And check it out. It says they're given white gowns to wear. Souls have a body. See, heaven is not some metaphysical, surreal kind of existence. It's a real place. And souls, in fact, have a body, but it's not the final body that you will live with for all of eternity. Because the reality is that when Jesus returns, the body of those who've died in Christ will rise from the grave to be reunited with their souls. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds. What he's teaching is those bodies come out of the grave to be reunited with the soul. And I want you to see, though, that the body that went in the grave is not the same body that's one day coming out of the grave. It's what Paul would call the blessed hope of the believer. There's a parallel passage to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we're now studying. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the Apostle Paul says this, the body that goes in the grave is corruptible. The one that comes out of the grave is incorruptible. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in mortality. It is raised in immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, it says these words, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, that's good news at least for two of us. Six of us. I think that's good news for all of us. Listen, y'all, when I was your age, when I was in my 20s, I wasn't thinking about the end. I'm old enough now. I can start to see the end out there somewhere. Don't blink, 30 years goes faster than you think. I mean, the reality. 
And you begin to see the joy and the hope of this promise that death is not the end. It is only the beginning. And did you know what Paul teaches here? The body that goes in the grave is under the curse of sin. The one that comes out of the grave is no longer under the curse of sin. You're going to have forever the resurrected, glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body Jesus had after the resurrection. The one, it says after the resurrection, could walk through walls. How would you like to do that? See, it's no longer confined to time and space. It's what Paul called a celestial body instead of a terrestrial body. In other words, it's a heavenly body made for eternity instead of a terrestrial body made for time and space. How would you like to travel between heaven and earth at the speed of thought? Whoa, dude. Yeah, it's remarkable. Now, I'm going to give you just a little sidebar. This is just Pastor Phil's opinion. This is just Phil's opinion. This isn't in the Bible. I'm just going to give you Phil's opinion. This is just me goofy, okay? Just me goofy. But if indeed we have the resurrected, glorified body of Christ for all of eternity, how old was Jesus when he was resurrected? Sunday school class? Everybody say? He was 33. How would you like to be 33 for all of eternity? Some of you are going, no, I'm 25. I don't want to be 33 forever. <laughs> yeah, well, when you're my age, it sounds pretty good. I don't know for sure. I just know you're going to have a body that will never grow old, never get sick, never, ever die. One that will live forever, never, ever again under the curse of sin. And that is why Paul writes, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. What is the trumpet of God? Numbers chapter 10. God tells Moses, I want you to craft two trumpets out of silver. And when you blow these trumpets, it will be the sound of those trumpets that the entire congregation of Israel will assemble at the front door of the tabernacle. And so understand what's going on here. The Jews would have understood the implication here clearly where you and I as non-Jewish Christians living 2,000 years later, sometimes we just kind of go over the surface without understanding the implication. Never forget that we are studying a book written by Jewish authors about a Jewish Messiah to Jewish people. So we have to understand in this Jewish culture, what were they seeing and what were they thinking? Hebrews chapter 8 says the tabernacle that Moses crafted in in the wilderness was a shadow of heavenly things, meaning God always gives us a physical picture to teach us some spiritual truth. He always gives us something we can see to teach us about something we cannot see. And so these trumpets made out of silver were what would be blown to assemble the entire congregation of Israel, picture several million people scattered out over several square miles. And when Moses or one of the priests would blow one of these silver trumpets, it was that sound of that trumpet that made people suddenly stand and begin walking and congregating toward the tabernacle, the tabernacle in the wilderness. According to Hebrews chapter 8, is a picture of heaven. And do you understand what this means? One last time, that trumpet is going to sound, and the entire congregation of the family of God is going to assemble at the tabernacle where our Messiah, the Savior, the high priest for all that believe will lead us beyond the outer court, through the inner court, into the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. Oh my, 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 my. He says this. Then we who are alive, remember those that have died, 
rise first, they precede us, then we which are alive, did you know there will be a generation of Christians alive that will never feel the sting of death? Now, then in this message, if you go listen to this Daniel series, this last message, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why, biblically, the prophecies tell us we're in the season of the second coming. We could be that generation. I'm not guaranteeing we are. <laughs> but we could be that generation still alive at the second coming. There will be a generation that never dies. He says this, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This term caught up uh, creates some debate theologically. What does this mean? What is this? Is this a separate event than the second coming? I'm convinced it is. I'm going to share with you why in just a moment. This word that Paul uses is harpazo, from which we get the word rapture. Rapture is not actually a Greek word. It was Jerome in 382 AD that was translating the Greek New Testament into Latin. Latin was the spoken language of the day. And so he translated harpazo into a word in the Latin, which was a rupio, from which we get the word rapture. It means caught up. It means snatched away. That's the implication. It's like you're walking around one day, going to work on a Monday morning, and then bam, you're just gone, snatched away, caught away. In fact, the apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, and I've heard all kinds of science that says how fast a twinkling of an eye is, but let's just say, it's fast. It's fast. I don't know, it's like one, one fraction of one fraction of one fraction of one half of a second. I mean, gone. Can you imagine how freaked out people are going to be? How many of you think this would be a really good idea on a Monday morning when you're driving to work? Just don't even have to show up. Or better yet, when you're taking that final and you haven't studied for it. Yeah, I was raised in Sunday school. Like, I remember literally, guys, I was so well-versed in the Bible growing up that I knew all about the rapture. And I remember literally showing up to tests when I was in high school that I wasn't ready for, praying for the rapture. <laughs> it didn't help. What is the rapture? What is this? Anyway, so, it's so like such a mystery, debated for centuries. And let me just define it like this. Let me put it very, very simply. Listen very carefully. The rapture, harpazo, caught up. The rapture is where Christ returns for his bride. The second coming is where Christ returns with his bride. Now, they're not the same event. They're certainly part of what the prophets called the day of the Lord. And that was the, the term the Old Testament prophets used often uh, for the second coming, for the Messiah and the establishment of this kingdom. But the day of the Lord is not a single day. It's a series of days. It's a series of events. 
And so you're talking about those events that are related to the rapture, the seven-year tribulation that is prophesied, Daniel 9, 27, to come upon the earth that precedes the second coming. You're talking about all those days and all those events. Now, the big debate is when does the rapture happen? In that same Daniel series, I gave five biblical reasons. You can go online, find it for yourself. Five biblical reasons. I'm convinced it's a pre-tribulational rapture that Jesus comes for the church, for his bride, before those seven years tribulation. Other people argue for a mid-trib rapture, pre-wrath rapture. Look, I'm not going to get wound around the axle about that. What I know for sure is there's going to be one. I want you to understand, though, there's some who argue for a post-trib rapture, meaning the church goes all the way through the seven-year tribulation. Can't be, and I'll tell you why it can't be. You get to Revelation chapter 19. It tells us the bride has made herself ready. The New Testament calls the bride. Who's the bride? The church. All right, it's we, we are the bride, the church. So Revelation 19 says the bride is in heaven, she's made herself ready, and she's given a fine white linen gown, and that white linen gown represents the righteousness of the saints. She's now going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then it says in Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness does he judge and make war. We're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And guess what it says? The armies of heaven followed him, and guess what they're wearing? Fine white linen grounds. The armies that are following him is the bride of Christ. We're coming back with him. How can we come back with him if he hasn't first come and got us? See, it cannot be a post-trib rapture because there's no way we can come back with him if he hadn't come got us first. So I'm not going to get wound around the axle tonight at all about it. If you want to put it somewhere else in a pre-trib, that's fine. If you want to put mid-trib, whatever, you know, people call it pre-rap. I have reasons, but it's been an in-house debate theologically for a long, long time. I think the important thing tonight is understand what it is. There is coming a place and there's coming a time where Jesus is going to come for his bride and he's gonna rapture us away. And the only way you can understand, again, the nature of the rapture and what the Apostle Paul is teaching is to understand the New Testament tells us that he is the bridegroom and we, the church, is the bride of Christ. Now understand the implication and all the teaching around this. You have to understand the ancient Jewish wedding had three stages or three phases, all right? There was the contractual phase, there was the consummation phase, and there was the celebration phase. All right, think of that contractual phase. It was more than a contract, because contracts can be broken. It was more of a covenant between the bride-to-be and the bridegroom. And the bridegroom, this Jewish bridegroom that wanted to marry this young Jewish bride, he would make a proposal, but it wouldn't be like our proposal today. First, he had to propose to the bride's dad. Yeah, how scary would that be? And they would come to terms on the price of the bride, the dowry. And then there would be a written call it a contract, more specifically a covenant, because it was binding, it was unbreakable. It was called a ketubah. And in the ketubah, he was writing out his specific promises he was making to his bride. 
And after having written out the ketubah, the specific promises he was making to this bride to never leave you, never forsake you, to always take care of you, and to always provide for you. Does this sound at all familiar? Hebrews 13, 5, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you understand that we have a bridegroom? He's a Jewish bridegroom. We have a ketubah. It is the New Testament. It is the new covenant. And the price of the bride was the blood of Jesus Christ. We are the betrothed bride of Christ. See, the church is in the first stage, the betrothal stage. It's more than being engaged because engagements don't make you legally married. But a bride that was betrothed was legally married. Now, here's what would happen. He would give her a cup of wine, having signed the ketubah. If she takes that cup and takes a drink, that is how she was saying, I do. Do you know every single time you take the communion cup, what we call the Lord's Supper, that's the second cup of the Passover Supper on the night before Jesus died, as he passed out that cup, it was called the cup of redemption. And every single time as the bride of Christ, you take that cup of redemption, as we do communion in the Lord's Supper, you are saying, I do, as the betrothed bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And check this out. If she indeed received the cup, the next words out of his mouth would go something like this. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Does that sound at all familiar paradigm? See, on the night before Jesus died, he said those famous words in John 14. He was speaking as a bridegroom, and every Jewish man there would have known exactly the implications because that young Jewish man would go away to his father's house by custom. He would go to his father's house. He would disappear for weeks or months, promising to reappear, promising to come again and take his bride back to his father's house. What was he doing for weeks or months? He was building a room on to the father's house. He was building a bridal chamber on to the father's house. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you. You, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And she didn't know when he was coming. He just, she just knew that he promised to come back. And one day, he was going to appear out of nowhere with no warning whatsoever. And check this out. The father alone had the date where he would say to the son, Son, the room is ready. Go get your bride. You remember Acts chapter 1? The disciples wanted to know, when are you going to come? What did Jesus say? No one knows the day or the hour. No, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father in heaven. That's right. That young man's father alone would give the nod to the son. And when that room was done, he'd say, Son, go back and get your bride. And out of nowhere, he would appear. And he would take her back to her father's house where they would go into that room and they would consummate the marriage and that would start then a seven day wedding feast. Now you know why there's a seven year tribulation on earth because there's a seven year wedding feast going on in heaven, a celebration between the bridegroom and the bride.
And only with that knowledge can you begin to understand what the Apostle Paul was talking about, worthy of every song. Wor- uh, that's, I'm not going to sing that. <laughs> that would be scary. All right, only when you understand that context can you understand the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says this, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. Indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Look what Paul, Paul is expressing the heart of the bridegroom, the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ for this church that was in Corinth. And this church in Corinth was full of sin and it was full of corruption and it was full of pollution. And he's expressing the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, who says, I'm jealous for you. Listen carefully, Jesus is not jealous of you, but he is jealous over you. He is jealous for you. Because you're the bride of Christ. You belong to him. Keep your heart solely unto him. Think about it. If you're married, I'm married. I know exactly what he's saying. What would happen to me tonight if I came home and I announced to Krista, who I've been married to 31 years now, honey, listen, I want you to know I still love you. I really, really do. But I met, I met another lady tonight. Her name is Sally. Let me tell you, she's awesome. And I, I love you, but I, found, I, I love her now, too. You don't mind, do you? Oh, and by the way, I didn't just meet Sally. I met this other girl named Susie. She's amazing. Now, honey, I, I really do love you. I really, really do. But I, I really love Susie, and I really love Sally. Hey, can't we just all be one big happy family? What do you think my wife's going to say? What do you think my wife's going to do? Let me tell you what my wife is going to do. She's going to call 911 because there's about to be a homicide. Mine. No, 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 no. She's jealous for my affections. She's jealous for my, she has a right. You know why? Because we're married. Hey, hey what, what, what do you think I'm gonna do? Some, somebody shows up at my front door, some young, good-looking man with a, with a bouquet of flowers in his hands, and he knocks on the door, and I open it, and he says, hey, uh, Mr. Hopper, um, listen, I'm here to take your wife out on a date. And I promise, look, we're not going to sleep together. We might just make out a little bit. You're okay with that, right? We're not actually going to sleep together, but we might hold hands and make out. I don't know if you guys knew this or not. Before there was a Pastor Phil, there was a Sergeant Phil. He was a SWAT cop. And he still knows what to do in situations like that. There will be blood. Here's the point. It's a relationship that demands loyalty, allegiance, fidelity. Do you understand that Jesus, he's not jealous of you, but as the bride of Christ, he's jealous over you. We're not to give our affection to another lover. And this world is full of would-be lovers, counterfeit lovers. And this is why it says over and over again, things in the New Testament like James 4 and verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. You talk about strong language, adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, is a friend of the world is an enemy of God? Because every single time we choose to sin, we give our affection to another lover other than him, and we are sleeping and holding hands and flirting. 
with counterfeit lovers that cannot love our soul like the only one who can, whose name is Jesus. 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither things that are in the world. The, the, anyone love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away and everything in it. So what will you give your affection in life? Guys, I'm telling you this because a day is coming. We're going to see the bridegroom. This is real. This isn't pretend. This is not a metaphor. Jesus Christ is coming again. And if you're still alive, you will see him. And guess what? If you're not alive when he comes and you die, you will see him. Either way, you'll stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ someday. Now, the question is this, will you stand ashamed because you lived with so many other lovers and you slept with sin over and over again? Or will you stand because you kept yourself chaste, a chaste virgin bride? Chastity has to do with purity. Chastity, to put it in common vernacular, integrity. No compromise spiritually. There's a, there's a thing that God commands of us all as image bearers of God. He said, be you holy for I am holy. I think if Paul were alive today, if he were standing on this platform, he might say the very same thing to this modern generation. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin bride. The Corinthians had in fact come to faith in Jesus. They were Christians, but they were still living like pagans. And did you know the pagans had a radically different sexual ethic than Christians? Did you know they had a radically different worldview and a set of moral values than what Jesus commands of you and me as his bride? And guys, I'm telling you, this is, a, this is real. I was raised in a generation of Christian legalism. I don't know if you know what that means, but as, as, I'm, being, as I'm raised in church, it was, it was a legalistic culture, a legalistic generation. What that means is, you know, common, I think, definition of legalism, draw, draw a fence or even a series of fences around the sin and then call it a sin to cross the fence. That was the generation I was raised in. So like, you know, a lot of movies are sinful, immoral, so you just shouldn't go to any movies. Does that make sense? I mean, draw, draw a fence around the sin, then call it a sin to cross the fence. You went to a movie, right? Uh, it, it's a sin to get drunk or drink in excess, so it's a sin to have any drink. I remember in youth group growing up, I actually took a vow in seventh grade that I would never allow any alcohol to touch these lips. I stood in my little middle school youth group and took a promise with my youth pastor that I kept until I was exactly 16 years of age. <laughs> That's how much legalism works. The intent may be right, it's just the wrong method. Legalism doesn't make anybody holy. You know, you can look all pristine and clean outwardly and still be filthy as can be inwardly. 
That was the world I lived in. But, but something's happened in these 30 years, y'all. Listen, now we live where the pendulum has swung way over here. It was over here. Now it's over here, where we live at a time not of legalism, but liberty, Christian liberty. And there is such a thing as Christian liberty. What does that mean? It means some of us shouldn't have a drink because that's an issue that could take us into captivity. Others, for example, you can have a drink. It's not a sin. The problem now, though, is Christians drink in excess. It's common. See, it's an abuse of liberty. Liberty becomes a license now. Hey, we live at a time of a sexual ethic that's radically different, radically other than what the New Testament teaches. Who gets to define what is morally right and morally wrong? Is it culture or is it Christ? Who's in charge of your life? Let me ask you, did your life reflect more of the culture around you or Christ in you. And if you stood before him tonight, would you stand as a chaste virgin bride? Because one day you will. You see, we should be preparing to see Jesus by pursuing a life that is holy and living for the things of eternity. And guys, I'm telling you, if you want to look back when you're my age, it begins today at your age. I went to a funeral this past Saturday. 30 years ago, sitting in a police car, and some of you may not know, before I was a pastor, I was a policeman, 1994, I'm a young adult, in my mid-20s. It's exactly where most of you are in life. I lead my very first person to Christ. I found my one. That's what we call it today. I didn't know I was looking for my one, but my one kind of found me. We're riding around. It's late at night, and it's between 911 calls, and, and he looks at me one night. He says, um, you're kind of religious, aren't you? Well, I'd never been trained in how to share the gospel, but um, I knew this might be a door I needed to walk through. Like, gee, I don't know. Maybe this is an opportunity. Well, it turns out, He's losing his marriage. He's going through a divorce. He's a man full of addiction, had several addictions. His life was falling apart. And he looked at my life and he said, there's something different. Let me tell you what was different about my life at the time, guys. I lived in a culture of infidelity. I lived in a culture of promiscuity. I lived in a culture of pornography. I lived in a culture where if I was a womanizer, even though I was married, it would have been celebrated by my peers. I live in a culture where we might get off work at eight o'clock in the morning, having been at work since midnight, and not go home at all. No, we go to the bar that would open up that early, and we'd all begin drinking until we were drunk and passed out. That was the culture I lived in. That was my peers at the time. But he looked at my life and said, there's something different. You're kind of religious, aren't you? Over the course of the next two weeks, we start talking about Jesus. I lead my first man to Christ at 31st in Baltimore at 2 o'clock in the morning in a police car. His life radically changed, but his wasn't the only one. He goes home. He leads his wife to Christ. God saves their marriage. Then he leads their children to Christ. God saves them too. I disciple him. My wife disciples his wife. Her name was Denise. 
That was 30 years ago. I went to her funeral this Saturday. And I sat there at her funeral listening to one person after another, after another, after another talk about the impact she had made in their life for Christ, how she'd flown all over the world on mission trips sharing the gospel, and how she discipled woman after woman and lady after lady. And I sat there with tears rolling down my face because I remember 30 years earlier sitting at my living room table discipling him and my wife is discipling her, I'm trying to tell you today there are only two things in this world that matter, the word of God and the souls of men. And if you're not living for those two things, you will have lived a life in the end that will not matter because you will have lived for things that don't last forever. Paradigm, if you want those stories in your 50s, you've got to live it now in your 20s. Don't wait, don't delay because it's urgent. Life is short and eternity is forever. And as you pursue a life that is holy, that gives you the credibility in modern American society. You see, it's that my life was different. And that's what made what I said relevant. Don't be afraid to be different. He says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. What on earth is comforting about any of this? When I was your age, I heard preachers talk about the second coming and the rapture, and I honestly wasn't sure it was good news. You know why? Because I got things I want to do. And I'm only like 25. I haven't, had a chance, I haven't had a chance to have kids yet. I mean, I want to have kids. Jesus, I want you to come just not yet. And I haven't got to go there yet. And I haven't done this yet. And I got goals. And I got things I want to accomplish. Jesus, please come just not yet. That's kind of how I felt at your age. I don't feel that way anymore. I'll tell you why, because life is good. Don't misunderstand. I don't have a death wish. It's not like, you know, gee, I, you know, come to, I, I, I probably am squeezing everything good out of life that this side of heaven has to offer. But I've lived long enough now to realize just how awful the curse of sin is for everyone. I'm tired of going to funerals. At your age, I hadn't gone to very many. I hadn't lost a lot of people I loved. I'm tired to go into graveside ceremonies. I'm tired of saying goodbye to people that meant a lot to me. I'm tired of saying goodbye to the people that I love. I'm just being honest. It's good news. And that's why Paul would say, comfort one another with these words. However good life is, heaven is going to be better. <laughs> Heaven's going to be better. I used to sit in Sunday school growing up, and I hear about heaven, guys, and, and I, I honestly thought, you know, I'm not sure I want to go there. It's probably better than hell. I just don't know how much better it could be. You know why? Because in my mind's eye, heaven, I mean, it's just going to be one long eternal church service that will never get over. I mean, how good can this be? And I'm just trying to say, heaven is going to be out of this world. You will not be bored. Just imagine if you can. No, you can't. You know why? Because the Apostle Paul would say, I has not seen nor 
ear heard nor has entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for them who love him. He says, comfort one another with these words because there is coming a day that this truth is gonna be more than comforting. It's gonna be more than encouraging. It's going to be the realest thing you have ever touched, fathomed, or imagined. It's not metaphysical. It's not surreal. It is 100% real, and very, very soon we're going to see the king. There will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more death, no more destruction, no more darkness, no more depression. Revelation chapter 22, God's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. There's no more mourning, nor tears, nor trial, no sadness, for the former things are passed away. The curse of sin is no more. It's going to be paradise lost, paradise redeemed gained, and I will absolutely promise you, if Jesus came tonight, for all that you haven't got to do yet, you'll be so glad when you see Jesus. You will not regret a thing, I promise you. But Paradigm, listen carefully. If tonight you have not placed your faith personally in Jesus and what he did on the cross, then you don't have this hope. Yeah, I, I know we live in a world that says, well, you know, just pick a God. Any God will do. Any religion will do. All roads lead to heaven. Yeah, I, I know all that. I know. But Jesus said this in John 14, 6, right after giving that good news as the bridegroom, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Yeah, he, here's what he says then. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And you know why he could say that? Because nobody else would ever die for our sin. No one else could die for our sin. No one else could. You know why? Because all men have sinned. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. It was a sin of a man that brought down the curse of sin for all men and all women. Only the death of an innocent man could reverse the curse of sin for all men and all women. No man could, because every man has sinned. So what did God do? He himself became a man so that he could die for our sin as the sacrificial lamb. And in his humanity, he poured out his life at Calvary to deliver us from sin's penalty. But because he was also deity, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He lives. And if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9 makes you a promise. It says, you shall be saved. And whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And tonight, if you've never done that, it can be your night. It can change right here. You can be radiant and ready. To quote a friend of mine, Miles Sarek, Paradigm Staff radiant and ready as the bride of Christ to see him 
with anticipation, expectation, knowing your sins are forgiven. I pray, God, tonight, if there be any man, any woman here that's not ready to see you, if they open their eyes tonight in eternity and do not know what they would see or where they would be, I pray that tonight they would leave with security, with certainty that they are ready that they have placed their faith tonight in the Son of God that died and rose again. And they have redefined their destination forever. In Jesus' name, amen.